I do have to say, just from the perspective of saving a discipline, like I'm, I'm sorry, folks, but I need you to understand if your goal is to shift public attitudes about history education, five readers, 50 readers, 500 readers, and 5,000 readers are all the same number, and that number is zero. You need to be talking 50,000 readers, 500,000 readers. Welcome back to Yeah, I Got an Effing Job with a Liberal Arts Degree. I'm the host, Jeff Crane. I'm an environmental historian and been an academic administrator for 12 years now. Uh, and I'm currently the dean for the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Cal Poly Humboldt in beautiful Northern California. Be sure to check out our podcast on uh, Spotify, Apple iTunes, and if you like it, rate us high and share it with other folks. Uh, today, I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Brett Devereaux at North Carolina State University. He studies the intersection of ancient Mediterranean economies and militaries, has his MA in classical civilizations from Florida State University, and a PhD in ancient history from UNC Chapel Hill. I have some fond Chapel Hill memories. Maybe I can share them with you at some point. Who doesn't? <laughs> his primary research interests concern the way that he, the lives of ordinary people in the ancient world were shaped by the structures of power, violence, and wealth under, under which they lived. A relevant topic today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as the ways in which those people in turn shaped the military capacity of states that ruled them. He's interested in many of the nuts and bolts of everyday life in the ancient world, things like production of textiles, the economics of small farming households, and the burden of military service. He's currently working on a monograph presenting a comparative study of the burden of fielding armies in the 3rd and 2nd century Mediterranean, considering the logistics, equipment, and mobilization systems of Rome, Carthage, the Seleucid. I've never actually said that out loud before. Did I say it right? Yeah. And and Tigeted and Tlamec kingdoms and the non-state peoples of Spain and Gaul. Brett is also active in public-facing publications aimed at improving historical literacy of the general public, as well as advocating for the humanities in general and the history in particular. His writings appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Bulwark, National Interest, and most frequently in foreign policy. And he also writes a popular weekly history blog called A Collection of Unmitigated Pedantry. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. We talked about the editorial you wrote for the New York Times uh, back in episode nine. It really spoke to us and our concerns. Um, uh, many, when I say our, I, I think I'm kind of using a royal hour, mm-hmm. but in the show in particular about how we promote the liberal arts and humanities, their importance, and get more people interested. And it looks like you're someone who's doing that in, in many ways. Uh, so, um, you know, we were already getting into discussions about, you know, current use of naval power and the expanding conflict and between Israel and Gaza. But before we get into things like that, I'd like to just, um, we're always interested in particular how someone decides to become a historian or um, study classical civilization. My path to becoming a historian was very accidental. Uh, and so I think that's important for us to convey to people that, you know, there's many ways into a field and an interest. So if you'd share with us kind of how that happened, that would be great. Yeah. Um, so I am the sort of weirdo that knew that I wanted to do this from a relatively early point. I am the odd duck that entered my, entered my undergraduate program with a declared major that I then actually did. Um, <laughs> so I, I came in as a, as a history major, um, and, and, that's what I. That's what I did. I knew that was what I wanted to do. I've always found that the past fascinating as a kind of repository of um, sort of true and fundamental knowledge. You know, there are only so many ways that we know things, and history is one of those fundamental ways that we can know things. Is well, this happened in the past, and it went this way, and so right. maybe it will go that way in the future. Um, and that had always, always interests me. You know, the real question as an undergrad for me was not would I study history, but but what history, the when and where, and so on. Right. Um, I, I I toyed with a number of different periods, but I had taken Latin in high school, and the sort of gravitational pull of the Roman Empire slowly drew me back in. Um, that then prompted um, a long uh, uh, sort of. Uh, postgraduate journey. I did a year as a postback at Georgetown to begin learning ancient Greek. 
Um, and then, as mentioned, a master's at Florida State in classical civilizations and classics department, mostly also to get languages up to where they needed to be then for the, for the PhD program at, at UNC. So it was something of a long journey. And being an, an ancient historian and an ancient military historian is always kind of an odd position because you wear multiple hats. I certainly think of myself primarily as a historian. But I'm also a classicist. You know, I read Greek and Latin, and I'm you know I go to I, I, I go to the the large annual classics conference SCS AIA every year instead of AHA. Um, and then of course on the flip side, I'm a, a military historian, which is its own sort of odd little subfield that interacts with you know broader military education and military science. Um, and so I'm in dialogue with people that do things like teach at the War College. Right, um, right. And so, um, you know, I sometimes joke that I have my historian hat, my classicist cap, and my military historian helmet um, that that I that I wear. Um, but that was sort of the the journey, and it it sometimes I think gives me um, what is perhaps an unusual perspective watching three different disciplines attempt to cope with what is happening to the liberal arts right now in different ways and to different degrees of effectiveness. Yeah, right. So the trifecta of suffering, kind of, and yes. impact. <laughs> Sorry, I tend to joke a lot. I try no, to, I try to gauge the guest, but I can't help myself. Sorry. Like all military historians, I am possessed with a dry sense of gallows humor. You have to in order to stay sane when you study war. That's funny. A good friend of mine, Andrew Orr. I don't know if you know him. He's at Kansas State, and he's um, several books, but the one I'm most familiar with studying the role of women in the military in France in the interwar period and their expanding political rights. And uh, same same kind of humor, I think. Um, yeah, I've always kind of toyed with military history. I co-taught military history classes, and a class I taught my last institution before I came here was um, we were looking at the great texts of war. So we read the Iliad and we read Henry V and the Song of Roland, but I was the historian. It was just, you know, as a 19th, 20th century American environmental historian, I just found myself wanting to read more and more and more. And currently I've been sort of involved with overseeing in my, not overseeing, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be associated with a really cool excavation uh, project in Macedonia that it's on a giant, it's on this plateau overseeing the site where um, Philip V of Macedon took on the Roman armies and, and lost. And uh, we're at Kynocephali. Yeah. Yeah. So just north of um, the town of Bitola. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, we're. We're finding all kinds of stuff, so, oh, so maybe we can consult with you at some point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you it, find any weapons, I'm your guy. <laughs> so far, things related to textiles and mm -hmm. um, metalwork and other things like that. Talk to us about your research and how your book is coming along. And, and I, I, I'm always interested in particular, and I think the audience, because we have a broad audience, like when we were getting into this with, with piracy in the Navy, the sort of the relevance of this historical work to maybe some of the things going on today. Yeah, so um, my current book project is um, under contract at Oxford University Press. Uh, oh, congrats. Yeah. That's pretty good press. I, yeah, it's, it's pretty decent. <laughs> um, I'm feeling all right about it. Um, I am looking at the, um, the methods of developing military power in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, which is the initial period of Roman expansion outside of Italy. That's really interesting because... A lot of the focus is on the imperial period where Rome is already the very, very dominant power. But in the third and second centuries, Rome is one of roughly five peer competitors in the Mediterranean. It's not obvious that Rome is the sort of big dog. Um, and, you know, I started by asking questions about what kind of resource demands were required, particularly beyond manpower. There had been a lot of focus on manpower, on just putting bodies in the ranks. I'm like, well, what are the other demands here? And came to the, the conclusion, somewhat against the strain of older scholarship, that Roman soldiers were actually quite expensive. Um, okay. Older scholarship had generally seen Roman soldiers as plentiful but expendable. Rome could just afford to throw armies at the problem until they won. And I was like, actually, if you look at, at the armor and equipment, these guys are pricey. That required a lot of um, work with archaeological evidence because we don't 
have anything like a price list for Roman armor. Uh, right. So a lot of work, um, you know, uh, what materials are required to produce this stuff, what kind of labor demands and so on. Um, and then from that sort of leaping off process, getting into what are the systems and the institutions and the social structures that these various states, as well as some non-state peoples in Spain and Gaul, um, are using to form up their armies? And why are the Roman ones so much more effective? Um, how is it that the Romans are able to field both radically more soldiers and better equipped soldiers and send them further away? And all of this is expensive. Um and is a sort of kind of spoiler preview. I and mean, the answer is that the Romans are willing to devolve a lot of this downward. Um, so rather than running a very centralized system where they're taxing all sorts of subject peoples and then bureaucrats are collecting that taxes and then you're, say, paying that to professional soldiers, rather the Romans in Italy look to the other communities that they've subordinated because it's not nothing but Romans in Italy. Um, you know, two thirds of the Italians don't have Roman citizenship in this period. Right. They're looking at these communities and it's like, we won't impose taxes on you at all. And we're not going to interfere with your local government. But in exchange, you have to send soldiers for our armies. Right. And the result is that Rome is able to access the military potential of the peninsula far more effectively. And as you say, I mean, I think every time I, I bring this up, um, the sort of modern, um, connections suggest themselves in some ways with the way the American security architecture is, is organized. You know, in the aftermath of World War II, uh, frankly, unlike the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, we did not impose tribute on the places that we had liberated. We incorporated them into NATO and, hey, if we go to war, we, we need you guys to send troops. And so the U.S. security arch arch uh, infrastructure architecture is, while different, um, in important ways is also mirrors the Roman experience in some ways and thinking about how different systems enable states to project power and harness military power is important, especially as we seem to be moving into a period of greater international tensions. Um, I'm not, I'm not ready to declare the long piece over just yet, but we're certainly at a bump in the road. The long piece, you mean the long American century or what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, the long piece being the entire the long piece. Oh, yes. Right. yes. The whole period post World War II where interstate violence has been falling. Um, which gotcha. I often, when I talk to people who don't study international diplomacy or warfare, they look at me and like, how can you say that interstate violence is, is falling? Like, look at all of these wars and conflicts and disasters I know about. I'm like, yeah, that's just communications technology. Um, there is, in fact, less war in the world um, now than there has been. Um, and we're at the, at the tail end of an extending period of, of exceptional peace. Um, world historically exceptional. No other period like this. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to go on forever. And, of course, the last few years have been bumpier. Um, right. and there have already been... Um, commentators and scholars asking, like, are we seeing the end of the long piece? That would be very bad. Yeah, well, for a number of reasons, but I would, I guess, um, assert or ask maybe um, the role of, of climate change crises as related to that. And uh, like, you know, droughts, flooding, refugee crises, things like that. Do you see that as part of that? Significant if you ask the Department of Defense. Right. Um, okay. Thank you. I, I when I teach climate change, I say they've been wargaming this for years. <laughs> Sorry. No, yeah. it, it surprises people. I'm like, no. Like, the, <laughs> you want to know what branch of the government? You know, maybe after the Park Service cares the most about climate change, and it's the Department of Defense. Absolutely. Um, because they're they're you know the American global interest is in stability. Um, you know, we are rich and free, and so we want things to kind of keep going as they are. And climate change threatens to to disrupt this. Um, I mean, you just need to look back um, at something like the Arab Spring. Um, and you're like, what was the root cause of the Arab Spring, which eventually led to both positive changes in places like Tunisia and negative changes in places like Egypt and yeah. Syria and Iraq. And, you know, in the end, you can pin some of the causes here to shifts in food prices. The price of grain went up because of harvest failures in the Midwest. Right. And 
that produced that sort of spiraling instability um, if if folks this is going to run on 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 Tuesday so this will still be in the news like if folks if you want a panic inducing graph look at what's happening to Egypt's currency right now because they are not getting tolls off of the Suez Canal because of the oh, Red right. Sea problem like the Egyptian economy is in trouble the last time the Egyptian economy was in trouble it sparked a series of of popular demonstrations and revolutions and civil wars one of which turned out well, many of which turned out quite badly, which spiraled across the whole region. Um, <laughs> and climate change makes a lot of these already shaky economies more vulnerable. Yeah, that's a sort of a factor increase. Um, thanks. That's really helpful. I, um, I've been referencing the, the Department of Defense and my climate change courses for years now. And, um, you know, the joke I make is the, the valid Marxists, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the historical commentary about climate change is being leftist. Um, so, and then, you know, it was interesting. I, I did get a chance to look at your blog and I was quickly scanning through a piece. It was, it was really interesting. I just got distracted by other things, but you were talking about the expanding naval conflict. And uh, I was like, there's a historical precedent there, right? If you And you're teaching a naval history class right now? Would you yeah. speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, I mean, the one thing to note um, for folks that were kind of surprised that the U.S. Navy was the responding agent to deal with um, Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea is that this has been the core of the U.S. Navy's mission since the Adams administration. Um, I mean, arguably, George Washington would have liked it to be, but spent most of his time wrangling with Congress trying to get those first six frigates built. Okay. Um, you know, uh, and this has been part of the, the, the Navy's mission has grown since then. Um, but the Navy began as what we would call a commerce Navy, where its primary goal is trade protection and to ensure that the United States could conduct business with foreign countries and that they could conduct business with us. And so it's not at all surprising that the Navy sees it as its purpose to step in. Globally, of course, for of, for most of the 1800s, the role of kind of vouchsafing international trade fell off into the Royal Navy. And after World War II, the United States Navy moved into that position. And if people wonder, why do we care? Um, the answer is that Americans derive a lot of benefits from trade. Um, right. You know, we both sell things abroad and we buy a lot of things abroad. And so disruptions to the system are bad for us. They also, of course, sort of tip over those chaos dominoes that we don't want to see go. You know, again, if this Red Sea issue isn't resolved relatively soon, it will eventually collapse the Egyptian economy. Um, yeah. There is no way the Egyptian government can stay upright indefinitely with the Suez Canal not doing business. Um, you know, likewise, it's going to cause problems in energy markets. Um, and the impact on the United States for that will be relatively muted because we are now a net energy exporter. Um, but the impact on some of our allies, especially our European partners, will be significant because their oil mostly moves through the Red Sea. Right, um, okay. And so, you know, for all of these reasons, it's been a sort of a strong strategic focus. And the U.S. Navy has been doing this mission since forever. Um, and I will note, the mission has always been, we might say, somewhat morally fraught because it often means imposing the United States' idea of order on other peoples in their own waters. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the case of the Red Sea, there's a whole mess of treaties that basically make the Red Sea international waters despite it otherwise being territorial waters because it's so narrow. Um, but um, but this has been something that, that the U.S. military has, has done, and there is a strong national interest reason to do so. I don't think you would expect it to stop. Right, right. And, I mean, you, you make the, you know, you're demonstrating the case for why the liberal arts or humanities are important in terms of understanding the historical role of the Navy and serving our strategic and economic interests and historical understanding of how these things are going to play out uh, in the next few years or, or actually maybe sooner. Scared. <laughs> maybe live in interesting times, right? Because yeah. there's no question we have things to talk about. Um, so let's, uh, let's jump over to um, the sort of broader discussion about the importance of liberal arts, humanities. I use liberal arts very, we, the podcast, uh, mm -hmm. Abigail and I use liberal arts very broadly. Um, it's a reflection of both the college I, I manage, uh, but also some definitions that we like. But what compelled you to write that 
editorial and what were the, the main points you were uh, trying to convey and want to share here on the show? And I, I should share with you too, that for me, one great thing about this show was um, I think originally I thought about, you know, as a place to sort of um, soapbox a little bit, but actually I've been learning a lot at talking to different folks. We interviewed uh, one of the faculty who was fired at West Virginia University and we were throwing ideas around how to write. Yeah, that was hard. Mm -hmm. How to reorganize a language department in a way that could have majors and enrollments, but that's not the traditional model. And it's driven me to study the public humanities more, for example. But so anyways, that's the kind of the spirit of this is a, a dialogue about what we can do. So back to the question. Then. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the short answer for why did I write it was the New York Times asked me to, um, okay. and I certainly wasn't going to say no. No. <laughs> um, the, the, the long answer is that obviously this has been a topic I have been talking about for a while. Um, and so um, when it was, was Marymount, I think, was the, was the, oh. the cause at the time, right, um, shuttering its, most of its liberal arts program, um, I had been talking about that on, on social media and that sort of, they're like, one of the editors, you're making some interesting points. Would you like to expand? Um, but this is an argument I've been making for a while. And of course, I come to it from my disciplines. So, you know, for me, um, I, you know, I think I, I, you phrased this at the beginning sort of very well is that I'm sort of making an argument for history and classics in particular and therefore for the humanities and therefore for the liberal arts and that kind of because, um, because quite a bit of the justification for why you have classics and history in the university is the value of a broad liberal arts education. And one of the things I tried to bring out in the New York Times piece, it's always hard with the strict word limits, um, was how much there used to be really broad political consensus in the value of this kind of you know education going back to, I was quoting from President Truman's 1947 commission on on higher education and the commission is actually extremely concerned by the idea that higher education might be seen as merely a means to train specialists and like it'll churn out engineers yeah. endlessly right. but they won't have the kind of broad understanding that comes from having at least dip your toes into other fields of human knowledge and endeavor and I think you'll pardon me, but one kind of looks sometimes at the hubris of the tech sector and it's like, ah, yeah, there's that. Um, oh, yeah. Where you, certainly not everybody, but you have folks where they have only ever mastered one skill and one form of knowledge and having never really been meaningfully exposed to others, assume therefore that all other forms of knowledge are somewhat lesser um, and easily moved by their one true form of knowledge. And a well-rounded liberal arts education is the antidote to this kind of thinking to expose you seriously to at least the rudiments of a range of different skills. Um, and so that someone like me has been inside a mathematics classroom and realized that math is both useful and really hard um, <laughs> yeah. and not my jam. Um, right. And that maybe I have something to learn from you know, folks who are teaching on literature, who are teaching on art history, who are teaching on mathematics, theoretical sciences, um, social sciences. Um, I make heavy use of social science methods in my historical work, but I am not a political scientist. And so, right, right. right we we cannot be experts in all things. And and so, the, the New York Times piece really kind of fell out of what is, has been sort of a a kind of campaign of mine to make this case in as many venues as I can. Right. Um, because I think we need to be making this case. The prevailing vision of higher education that is, I think, sometimes quite shamefully offered by our universities, but also very popular among our politicians, is a vision of higher education almost purely as jobs training. Yeah. where all it is meant to do is churn out workers. And certainly higher education has great economic benefits, um, but it is supposed to do something more than churn out identical economic cogs. It is supposed to produce um, citizens and leaders in their communities who can think more broadly and more deeply, who are a little more open to different ideas and ways of life, um, and who can engage as, as citizens in our civic processes 
rather than merely as workers in our economic processes. And and this, to, to be quite frank, is a mission I think many universities are sleepwalking away from, cutting into liberal arts gen eds yeah. um, and, and then stripping down these, these programs. And so this is something that I think both for the survival of my discipline – um, which we can get into the grim news of history um, <laughs> yeah. if we want, um, both for the survival of, of, of my discipline, but also for the, the broader health of the country. Yeah. Um, these are skills that are valuable for us to have as, as a society. No, I mean, you say it, all this so effectively, I'm going to try to not solely the clarity and power of your, um, your, uh, discourse. I, um, Martha Nussbaum, I can't remember the title of the book, but the book she published in 2008, and she in particular critiques the Department of Education report, I think it was 2008, the Bush administration, mm -hmm. um, points directly at the, this, this pushing of education towards um, gross national product and jobs, that it would have this damaging, or already was having, but of course much worse now, damaging impact on... Um, I should have started my sentence a little differently, but the ability of Americans to uh, to um, to be less um, hmm, trying to pick my words carefully here. Let me let me back up. Start that sentence again. There's um, an ongoing trend away from pluralistic thinking, the ability to think empathetically, to try to and effectively understand uh, other countries, other nationalities, uh, um, the benefits of other disciplines as you spoke to. And we're seeing the culmination of all of that, right, mm -hmm. um, in our society right now. And um, and you're right. It's just, this is for me, and you know, it's, I'm in about as sticky as, position as you can be in as in the CSU system we're you know being pressured to come up with plans for low um, degree conferring programs at the same time we can look and see but all we ever talk about is STEM and applied fields we don't right. promote and support the importance of liberal arts and I'm fortunate that the group that I work with as administrators they don't roll my eyes when I talk about something besides ROI they, they get it you know that there, there was recently a thread. There's a group, um, Council of Colleges of Arts and Sciences. I call it the Dean's Group. There's a you know big thread, and someone just posted this like plaintive appeal to the to all the deans saying, "What do I do when they just insist on nothing but ROI, return on investment?" And I had that experience before, where you know. What's the return on investment? And you get trapped in that discussion, right? And you're trying to make economic arguments. And you can, right? We are like the cheapest, right? And we, right. we provide so much value economically as historians, for example. But um, but then to move to those other arguments, the, the qualitative benefits of, you know, the role we have in reproducing a civil society and a functioning and protecting freaking democracy, right? So anyways... Um, Yes. No, and I think it's I, important. I also think it's worth noting that this is a bipartisan disease. Um, yes, I think absolutely. folks often look at it and they assume it's it's just the other political tribe. Mm -mm -mm. This is a bipartisan. The current Department of Education is no different. Yeah, you're right. Um, and you know, red states cut the liberal arts out loud and blue states do it quietly, but the end result is the same. Um, I, you know, obviously, you know, last year it was, it was, it was West Virginia university we were all talking about. And like right now, I know some of my friends in the history department at the university of Connecticut are bracing for cuts. 15%, um, right? Brutal. Um, yeah. and, uh, great department, by the way. Um, and, and it just, you know, um, it's it's not political. It is ideological. Yeah. Um, and that, explore that a little bit more. So it's nonpartisan. It's not political. It's ideological. Explore that, please. Yeah. I mean, so part of this comes out very clearly when you do have like these big cuts hit and departments are trying to defend themselves and. Part of what you see is that often the 
explanations from administrators. You expect data and charts and discussion of finances, and you don't get it. Um, you know, the language program at West Virginia University, which got just hammered, basically obliterated, they had a strong economic argument to make and they were making right. it. And they're like, we're like, they're like, we're a net profitable program right. um, because sure, we don't teach as many students as other programs. We're a lot less expensive than those programs. And so we still end up net positive. You're, you're responding to a financial shortfall by cutting a program that nets you money. Um, and of course, like, I mean, most of your listeners will know this, right? But like undergraduate tuition doesn't usually change based on their major. So a student that's taking a load of engineering classes is a right. net loss to the university. A student that takes a load of history classes is a net gain right. in terms of finances because, you know, me, I'm cheap. I'm, I mean, I'm an adjunct. I'm really cheap. Um, <laughs> God only knows. Um, but like even, you know, a, a history tenure line is just not that expensive. You know, you can hire, you know, three, four history professors or one business professor. Um, you know, and at the undergraduate level, those students are often paying the same tuition. Um, can I use an analogy real quick? Mm -hmm. That I, the chair for history here, uh, Ben Marshke, uh, he um, he compares it to like when you go for a burger and a soda. Yeah, the I, I want to get this right, but the burger they're not really making money on. So history is the soda, right? That's where all the you're generating a lot of revenue. And by bringing a student in to take mechanical engineering, for example. They might be, so, you know, a net loss in, in those areas, but when they're taking the GE courses, the history right. courses, and philosophy, you're generating uh, substantial revenue. So, but then you see, but then you see the ideological project reemerges as the universities cut back those general education requirements. And in part, I get it. The curricular design challenge and the engineering program is always going to want to cut back those GE requirements to oh, yeah. fit in more required courses for their majors. Though, on some level universities are not vocational schools. It is the mission, the educational mission of the university to tell the engineering school, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, that some space must be preserved for general learning. Right. Um, but you see, but what they do is they bring the accreditation standards, right, which have been very deliberately constructed to reduce the amount of gen ed in the right. education, right? And, and that's and, and you're stuck. What do you do, right? Is you, yeah. are you going to say no? I won't accept that accreditation, and then the students won't come because it needs to be accredited, right? So sorry, but no. And I mean, like I and and this is the pervasiveness of the ideological project is is part of the problem that you know it is it is. Some university, many university administrators, but it is also the Department of Education. It is also the accreditation organizations. It is pervasive in in the social context as well. But you can see the ideological project play out in terms of decisions that otherwise don't make any sense. Um, Clifford Ando recently just put the University of Chicago on blast for what seems like just catastrophic, um, you know, financial mismanagement, and they're now in a hole. Um, in part because oh. they're trying to live like they're Harvard. And, you know, Chicago is a rich university. It is not that rich. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that he was pointing out is that just massive overinvestment into extremely expensive programs. Right. Business schools, med schools, that kind of thing. And and meanwhile, the traditional core at, at Chicago has been its liberal arts. That's what it was good at. And that has been left to rot. Um, and you see that sort of ideological project play out in all sorts of places um, on the on the government level. One of the things that I point out with uh, the major grant making federal institution for the sciences is the NSF. Um, and it has an eight point two eight billion dollar budget. Yeah. The NEH is one fiftieth the size. Yeah. And then that plays down the line because then you get university administrators who decide we're going to prioritize departments that bring in grant money. Right. Well, there's nothing your humanities professors can do to bring in grant money right. because the entire pool of grant money is $200 million. Right. Um, no, and that's not enough. And then that is used as an excuse to cut programs, which again are some of the cheapest programs in your university for educating students, um, which doesn't – which puts the university right back in the bad financial situation it was at the beginning. Right, um, right. 
I mean, I have seen this with some of the private schools that have cut back on their liberal arts. You just need to go two to five years down the line and they're starting to close shop, right? Yeah. They, 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 they make this overcommitment to applied fields and STEM. There was a one, I can't remember the name of it, in Portland that closed a few years back. And I was dean at St. Martin's University, a small good Catholic university that, you know, financially has a lot of work to do to be successful. So I was deeply intrigued by this other university that closed. And that's what I saw. I went back and I looked at their, their courses going back years. And I saw when they pivoted over to all applied fields and like four years later, they were out of business. Yeah. And, and the net effect on, on disciplines in the liberal arts has been, has been catastrophic. That's it. I remember it. Sorry, go ahead. The net effect on disciplines in the, in the liberal arts has been catastrophic. Uh, I can speak best to the, the data in, in history, you know, history hiring, fell off a cliff in 2008. It dropped by about 40, 45%. It has never gone back up again. Right. Every year since 2010 would have been the worst year on record before 2008 in terms of academic hiring, unless you went back earlier than the 1970s. Right, right. The result is that, I mean, the the UNC Chapel Hill, uh, this I'm, I'm maybe a year and a half out of date with this statistic, um, so some of this may have changed, but last I checked, in the 12 years since I arrived there to get my PhD, they've lost 20% of the department. Jeez. Um, a study of history departments, uh, 14 history departments in a range of different institutions, both public and private, large and small. Um, in the Midwest, the mean department had lost a third of its faculty. Holy cow. Um, if the hiring remains where it is, we will eventually balance at a discipline of history that is about half the size of what it was in 2008. Um, of course, for me, as someone who completed my PhD in 2018, my experience of this has been the job market. Um, you know, placement rates for historians in 2007 or 8 were 80 80-ish, 70-ish, 80-ish percent. Um, for my cohort, they are 10 to 15 percent. Yeah, um, yeah. It and that that's and of course part of this is grad student classes lag because you spend five to eight years in the program, but now we're seeing grad student sizes shrink. Um, and ironically, we're seeing universities who have been cutting their history departments for years suddenly panicking because those history departments are like, well, we're going to slash the number of grad students they take because my God, then who will teach your courses? Um, <laughs> and you can't encourage someone to go to grad school now in, in good no. faith, right? Because there's no jobs. There's so. no jobs. And so this is, um, you know, this is something I, I've seen played out here. This isn't public knowledge, so I don't want to name the department. Sure. Um, but a, a department that had been shrinking, um, which went to its administration, it was like, we're going to cut incoming, the incoming grad class like substantially. And they got real pushback from the administration on doing so because like, well, who's going to TA your courses? How are you going to teach these big surveys? And you're just like, your head is slamming into the desk. You're like, now you're concerned about teaching the courses. Maybe you should have replaced these tenure lines. Yeah. Yeah. Grad students are cheap. Well, and I'm sure that if you propose to replace them with a bunch of underpaid adjuncts that look like me, you know, some of those administrators would be happier. But then the net effect of this in the long term is still negative. Look, the, the fact of the matter is... And the other thing, let's let's add one other point to what you're saying, is that mm-hmm. you're also losing, you know, the the scholarship work that needs to be done, the service, the leadership. You're, you're hollowing out the core of everything, right? It's not just losing teaching, you're losing uh, so much more. Yeah, I mean, as much as, as, much as it is a, it's a bummer for me to be, you know, off the tenure track, I would much prefer to be on the tenure track, um, I take very seriously my, my assistant professor colleagues whose complaints are like, look, I mean, we're in a department that has, you know, half as many tenure lines as it used to. All the others have been replaced by adjuncts. You can't put the adjuncts on committees. They can't do service work most of the right. time. And so the load just becomes crushing. Um, I, Aaron Bartram had a good line, um, uh, you know, a couple years ago that, um, you know, for tenured faculty, the the crushing weight of of those assignments, the, the fatigue and burnout you feel is the phantom pain of your missing colleagues. Yeah. Um, which oh. is just, well, what a sentence, but, um, yeah. but it expresses the idea, the idea perfectly. And then of course, the other angle of this, um, that the university administrations are doing is students take their cues from the university as to what is valued 
Yeah, right. If you have a big, expensive, fancy new engineering building that you are right. always bragging about, and the history department is shrinking in a dingy, unrenovated hut across campus, right? Um, and half of them are adjuncts, right? And as right. a result, the vibe of the department is gloom, right? Students pick up on that, yeah, and they say there's yeah. no future in history when, in fact. And I want to stress this as much as I can, as frequently as I can. I think I got a New yeah. York Times article too. History majors do fine in the economy. They absolutely do. There's no question. There's uh, labor reports generated that show that they get jobs and they make good incomes. Yeah. Uh, this is a known thing. I was just talking to the Dean of University of San Diego yesterday who's going to come join the show. And uh, it was like, they get jobs. They all get jobs. They all get and job. it's such a myth. But, you know, the point you make, and this is a point I make often too, is you know we we're, we're we say that well the students well one there's there's a couple models one assuming that students know what is right and no you know you're the I think maybe the exception that you always knew you wanted to do history um, so we say the students choose and therefore by choosing we respond by you know what we emphasize and but in fact it's the opposite right we're we're like Detroit pushing you know. SUVs and the odds mm. and then saying, well, this is what consumers want. Right. And I, I've always, I want to live in a world in which there is, I want to see what a strong marketing and communication commitment to the liberal arts would look like in terms of impact. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of people, University of Arizona, College of Arts and Sciences, uh, did their own marketing and communication and saw a dramatic increase in their majors, for example. I saw a presentation by them, but no, you're right. In facilities, mm -hmm. again, saw the same thing at a, our last institution. We rolled out nursing. We talked about nursing, promoted nursing, brand new spiffy facilities, right? And then the redheaded stepchildren over to the side, the liberal arts, right? Right. Yeah. And students, students pick up on those messages and then they carry yeah. that message out into the real world and it becomes the general understanding and this is why you get these sort of persistent myths that like that you know history majors can't get jobs yeah. um, or that they under earn which is not untrue right and and then that right drives policy which reinforces the idea and it becomes this tail devouring Ouroboros that just ruins departments and of course to me I, I just kind of want to scream that like on some level Universities have a mission obligation to foster these fields, but also to tell students what they need to study. Yeah. I, this sort of, well, right. students have, have to choose. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I mean, yeah, you know, right. I came into my undergraduate, uh, my undergraduate program. Let me tell you, I didn't want to take any math or science. The university right, right. was like, mm, but you have to. And you right. have to take some social sciences too. And looking back on that, I benefited from that. At 18, did I know I would benefit from that? No. Like all 18-year-olds ever made by God, I was stupid. <laughs> yeah. um, right? I mean, this is – we all know this. If you knew everything, you wouldn't need to be in college. Right. And so, um, universities need to take an active role in, in, in you know, putting forward, like, here are the things. And they should be explicit about it. The reason they do it in this sort of backdoor way is that any university that put this out as a mission statement would be laughed off the block by everybody because of how absurd it is. So the ideology has to work in, in silence. For the same reason that West Virginia University will tell you it's cutting all of these programs for financial reasons. And it's like, oh, then you're going to open your books and let us see? Oh, my, no. Oh, yeah. No, no, right. no. We're never going to. Yeah. I have never once, I'm sure you probably have, it's probably happened. I have never once seen a university justify liberal arts cuts by actually bringing out the financials and explaining <laughs> how this works. And, you know, private companies don't do that either, but these are public institutions, they are taxpayer yeah. funded. Yeah, it should be. It should definitely be transparent. It should be accessible, right? Yeah. And um, and leadership should be able to make a case with all that information being publicly known. And that's that's exactly what what the faculty in my college asked for. And I've been making requests. Not I. I need to be careful. Um, we are working actively in that transparency here. We just had a great session yesterday talking about budget and things like that. But but in the past where I've said, you know, let's do some math and show me, 
what the value of history is versus nursing in terms of the cost versus the revenue. I've never been able to get there myself and see those numbers. So let me ask you, um, I think you're doing this already a little bit, but um, what are some recommendations? Like, you know, you sit down with a president of a university or a dean or a provost, what... And you and you have the power to make something happen. What would what are the things you would say besides, for example, better facilities, uh, more transparency around budget, promotion, actually promoting the importance of liberal arts, um, and a well-rounded education? And you're right. I mean, I had zero interest in history, and just I had to take a history course, and I did. And I was like, oh my god, history is fascinating. I you know it was because we see this all the time. This is one of the things I do. I do a lot of stuff with students. Right. Mm -hmm. Take them on hikes. You know, we live in Redwood country here. So I always ask them, you know, like, where are you from? What's your major? Did you change your major? And why? Right. You know, so I'm always deaning and at least half, if not two thirds to three quarters have changed their major. And then, you know, some I'm being anecdotal here. But a significant majority amount of the time is when I ask why, they're like, oh, it's because I took a class. I'm thinking of someone very specific here. I took a class with Julie Alderson, and now I love art history, and now mm -hmm. I'm doing that. Right? And so that – anyways, so what would your recommendations be? Um, you know, at the administration level, obviously, you know, we, we, we've talked about thinking about the message that the, the university projects. I think that there is also um, – Administrators need to be, I think, a lot more transparent about what the metrics are, what the university is judging. Um, there is certainly a sense among many of my colleagues that um, this is this is programs are assessed on assessed on whose line is it anyways rules where the the, the rules are made up and the points don't matter. Um, and so I think universities need to be clear about what they're valuing and why. Um, to help departments make decisions that are going to put themselves in good stead, right? If what your university values is, right, you're making these decisions based on enrollments versus majors, well, those are different department strategies. Right. Um, and in a lot of cases, you have departments that have plenty of enrollments and then get cut because, like, well, you don't have any majors. I right. will say, personally, I think that is a really dumb way to do it. Um, you know, in, in the end, it, it's a butts and seats question. Yeah, um, right. But, but precisely, I think the ideological program looks for the excuse to cut departments it does not value. Um, but nevertheless, I think transparency and sort of what are you what are you asking for? What is being demanded? Um, is it is it research productivity? Is it um, is it teaching? Is it um, you know engagement with the community? You know what what are you looking for? And then right, stick to it. Um, I think it would be really important. Um, it would also, right, it can be important for programs when they do get to hire people that they could think strategically um, right. about those hires. You know, I, I will admit, I mean, even as history departments are, are under a lot of strain, sometimes you look at the hiring patterns of these departments and you scratch your head and you're like, what are you, what are you thinking Right, like you need you need enrollment, and you have hired like the fourth person in this one con tiny concentration. Say, I need to hire the replace the Atlantic World historian who's retiring. Right, yeah, and <laughs> and you know part of that, of course, is it's certainly a pattern I've noticed in history departments and in other places too, especially when departments shrink, they tend to drop subfields rather than trim concentrations as a product of internal department politics, right? Like if your history department has, I don't know, imagine a big history department, you have like eight US history people and eight modern Europe people. And then, you know, the other maybe 16 members of the department are split over every subfield in existence. Well, US history is never losing a tenure line. Uh, if that decision is made collectively by the department, um, you know, and again, I think administration has a role to kind of reach in and say like, well, wait a minute, like you're, I don't know, Latin American courses, if you've got like one guy that does that, they traditionally enroll really well. Right, right. You need to replace this person. You can't simply let this drop. Right, um, yeah. Because otherwise, I've certainly seen departments let that drop or leave leave positions as long-term contingents um, that just make no sense. Um, military history is actually kind of bad for this. We have a department 
that will have robustly enrolled military history courses, often in part because their ROTC program is relying on them to commission cadets. Yeah. Right. And you're like, well, who teaches this? And it's like, well, no tenure line faculty can teach this. So it's some long-term contingent position oh, right. that has been contingent for a decade or more. Um, which creates all sorts of problems down the line. It also, I will note, it's foolish for the department because that that fact sabotages the creating majors pipeline. Right, right. Because that student then, I'll be frank, I'm in this position right now. The student comes up to me and says, like, what advanced courses are you teaching? And it's like, none. I teach nothing but none. general surveys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just teach gigantic mega classes forever and ever and ever. Um, and so... Like you just let a potential well, if you major had some upper level classes, you would be pipelining students into the major, right? right? Yeah. No, right. I had the same experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. So let's. Um, I got just a few more minutes here with you. Unfortunately, you got to wrap mm -hmm. it up. So let's pretend you're an administrator. Um, what What do you uh, ask? What 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 can faculty do at the curricular departmental level? to increase both enrollments and majors. And I hear you on, you know, enrollments is the fundamental issue, right? Butts and seats, if you can get to the right ratio of students to faculty, pays the bills and all that. Um, I also hear you on the ideological mission, which uses majors as the reason for, but that also is the reality, is we're asked to do both. Mm -hmm. So what do you do at a curricular level to try to attract more students beyond what we've talked about. Um, and I asked this, I'm a very uh, invested questioner here right. because I, I'm trying to do exactly that right now in my own college um, and, and get people on board. So, Yeah. I mean, so certainly in the curricular approach, breadth and not depth. Um, and I mostly bounce around adjuncting at R1 institutions who are allergic to that. They want depth because of, of research. Um, but you want a wide range of classes to potentially attract students. I think more broadly, um, a lot of, of these disciplines have folded in on themselves to a significant degree. They mostly, we mostly talk just to each other and we write scholarship to each other. And that needs to change as well because we need to be transforming this broader public conversation. How do you get academics to do anything? And the answer is you change hiring, tenure, and promotion requirements. Um, and so I would also say that effective public outreach and public scholarship needs to become a more important part of what these disciplines do. Thank um, you. I was hoping you would say that. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And then also that in crafting those requirements, the, we need to think hard about what public scholarship is and what its goal is. All too often, I see positions that, you know, they advertise for what they want as a public scholar. And you look at, you know, who they're job talking, who they're selecting, and what they, what they actually want is someone that produces trendy academic stuff that is put on a public-facing blog no one reads. Right. Um, that is not public scholarship. That doesn't serve the mission of the university. And that's uh, an area where, again, I think the university strategy is, is implicated. It should theoretically be quite good for your university to have faculty members that are writing in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Absolutely. That, are, that are in these public spaces sharing their expertise. You should want to see your academic affiliation on bylines. Um, and that's the kind of, of, of publicly engaged scholarship that you should be pushing for, this kind of stuff people actually read. Um, whereas, I mean, certainly in, in history, it seems that it is considered somewhat gauche to ask how many people actually read your thing um, when, it is, when it is public facing. Um, I know. Right, talking, yeah. about, talking about view counts, you get tut-tutted by people. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you're going to engage the public, you must actually engage some meaningful chunk of the public. Yeah. And I do have to say, just from the perspective of saving a discipline, like, I'm, I'm sorry, folks, but I need you to understand, if your goal is to shift public attitudes about history education, five readers, 50 readers, 500 readers, and 5,000 readers are all the same number, and that number is zero. Yeah. Um, you need to be talking 50,000 readers, 500,000 readers, um, you know, to, to be making an impact. Um, but we don't prioritize that kind of impact. And so most departments don't do it. Frankly, even a lot of departments that build themselves as having public history programs, 
you look at like, do they have anyone who does that kind of work? No, nobody. Um, and and so that is something that sort of as administrator, like you as your as your department need to get out there and be engaging with this. You also probably need to be engaging with local communities, right? right Public right. history is not just the art of dropping you know pieces in the made by history column that used to be in the Washington Post and is I think now dead. Um, <laughs> but it's also engaging with the community around, especially on, on issues like local history. What is the history right. of your town? What is the history of your city? What is the history of your state? Um, because again, this is a, a mechanism to get in the door, though, though once again, quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, you need to be, you need to, you know, your talk to 10 people isn't moving the needle. A talk no. to a hundred might. Um, yeah. And so, we're trying to, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, and so I just think that, that that kind of public orientation, and certainly in my work, I, I just think that this is, you know, for my sort of twin disciplines of classic and his, classics and history, we desperately need more of this um, as a discipline-wide response. And I know we're not, we're not talking about this sort of aspect here, but I am regularly furious at the senior levels of these disciplines who are safely ensconced at elite private institutions that are under no funding pressure and are therefore blissfully oblivious as the rest of the discipline collapses. Public institutions do not have that luxury. No, well, well said. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to assign words to you that you didn't say, but I, let me, let me, let me, um, spitball a little bit here. We're trying to build out both our digital humanities initiative. We're doing something actually around military history, to be honest. Um, and also public, uh, humanities doing, um, you know, engagement with the community and, uh, local historical, cultural, literary work. And the goal there being to both engage more with the community, um, and having that education and knowledge flowing both directions, but also really, Helping our students build out a set of skills that will, you know, help them, you know, thrive educationally and professionally, but also help them make the case for the importance of their humanities degree. Um, so, so these types of advocacy and self-efficacy, right? So, so I mean, does that mean, you know, like I wrote a book, it sold around two thousand copies, you know, and uh, you know, I don't ever see anyone reading it, and uh, I like, what what's the impact, right? Or would it be better to have a series of five-minute videos talking about key elements from that that might get. Well, I'll give you an example. I um, so my best-selling book has sold two thousand something copies, right? Which is not bad for an academic mm. book, but it's quite good for an academic book. Thank you. Uh, it, yeah. Um, and then I randomly stuck my phone out of the car while driving through an ongoing fire in the mountains in Northern California, and I quoted from. Um, James Baldwin, you know, so I filmed the fire and the smoke and the destroyed trees. And I said, God sent no other rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. And I got 14,000 views <laughs> right. on Instagram. So is that what we have to do? Because, you know, the elites and, and, and the, but it's even trained into us as to what is legit history mm-hmm. or what's legit scholarship. What what are the tools and strategies to, to more effectively communicate? Like you've got some, I think, really important things to say about the history of U.S. naval power and what's happening now currently in the Red Sea. Uh, and I know you have a blog, but what are some of the ways we do that that really and get people to engage and say, oh, yeah, I think history is important. Yeah. And I think so first I would say that I think we need to, to understand, right, that like the what we are doing, right, is we are both generating knowledge. And that is important. If we stopped doing that, then like right. what are we here for? And right. so that academic research is valuable. But if all we do is generate knowledge and never distribute it, we are also not accomplishing anything. Right. And so the method of getting that out into the world is is also important. And I think we need to give both of these processes equal weight. A lot of what I am doing in my blogging and what have you is essentially decoding and presenting research, you know, done by others whom I'm citing to a broad readership that is interested in learning about those things. But either, you know, this stuff is written in academic or right. often it's in volumes that are just not acquirable for regular right. people. You know, some two hundred dollar right. book that is only in university libraries. That kind of thing. Um, and so both 
both elements of the that process are are crucial and important. I think you know where one reaches out to the public is going to vary considerably depending on the kind of, of work you do. Um, obviously, because I'm a military historian, a lot of my work um, and a lot of the work of sort of my colleagues that I'm talking with and the conversations we're having and so on has national security kind of connections. Um, thus, you know, I have a relationship with an editor at Foreign Policy. Um, I can get right, to say right. things like my editor told me um, and sound <laughs> terribly Right. Um, terribly fancy. And that, you know, provides a certain sort of audience. And, and you do need to think strategically. And again, this is something where I think that if we were being more serious as disciplines and as departments, like this would, should be something in a tenure, um, you know, a tenure binder is here is how I have thought strategically about what is the public audience I'm trying to reach? How am I trying to reach them? And then here's me doing it. You know, um, is foreign policy going to reach the general general public? No. But, but it is going to reach. It's a significant publication. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I was impressed when I saw yeah. that on there. Yeah, and yeah. and it's valuable for me in the sort of messaging because it does reach the national security community. Right. 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 Um, and and the DoD has a lot of money. Um, yeah. um, I mean, God help me at this point, um, because of the decline, otherwise decline in our discipline. I think the majority of military history jobs in any given year. Um, are posted by the Department of Defense um, right. at the various service mm. academies and war colleges. Um, and I have promised my foreign policy editor a piece on how the decline of the history discipline is undermining national security um, that I need to actually write um, or finish writing. It's like halfway done. It's been halfway done for far too long. Um, when you get that published, will you let me know? I'd oh, like yeah. To read it. No, I'll, I'll yeah. definitely shoot it to you. Um, but... Um, but these sorts of issues. But obviously, if you're working on different kind of history, your um, you know your venue may be different, your approach may be different, your intended audience may be different. Right. We need to be thinking about about that and about the sort of message we're trying to deliver. Um, and that obviously that doesn't mean that that traditional scholarship is isn't valuable. But I think the idea that some folks seem to have that well, they're just engaged in um, in the production of knowledge and other, it's the dissemination of knowledge is other people's job. We cannot function as a field like that anymore. I agree. Um, you know, it, we need to be doing both and the dissemination of that knowledge conveniently also puts front and center the public service we are providing, which is what we need the public to see for them to understand why we need the funding we need and why we deserve it. That is a fantastic point to end on, and you're absolutely correct. I really enjoyed this. Dr. Devereaux was great. And, uh, Thanks for having keep me us, on. Keep, keep in touch. Maybe we'll get Will to do, do it again sometime. Yeah.